Hey, open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, and we'll read, we'll read there together. We're going to finish this book of the Bible before long, and um, I wanted to mention that next Sunday is not only Palm Sunday, but we're going to take communion together in our worship services, uh, handout packets to people who are uh, not able to be with us yet. If you're watching online, by the way, we're glad to have you, and I'll do that from 1230 till 2 today. So, uh, a couple of the deacons will be masked and ready to help people who need to still be uh, quarantined and that sort of thing. And uh, it's going to be a special time, and then, of course, Easter Sunday is always so special for us. We'll have some overflow um, areas there as well, and on and three services that day, if you didn't know that already. Well, let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to finish this book of the Bible. And uh, I want to just kind of remind you that this, we won't finish it today, by the way. I'm just going to read three verses. But this letter is written at the end of Paul's life. So it really has a lot of reflection as he thinks about the end as he's facing eternity and what really matters and what really counts and what does he want to pass on to Timothy and really to us. So let's read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, let's read those three verses together. The Bible says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Let's talk about getting the most out of life. And Paul, as he's thinking about the end of his life and talking about it, really gives us some clues in how we could have the life God wants us to have, these brief moments that God gives to us. So let's note these three principles. If you'd write them down, if you're here in person, it's right on the back of your worship guide. If you're online, uh, you, the church app has it, or you can see it on the uh, website, or you can just write it on pieces of paper. Let's write these three principles. Number one, acknowledge the brevity of life. If you want to get the most out of life, you're going to have to recognize that life is short and brief. The Bible calls it like a vapor, sort of like a fog that burns off when daylight comes. Like a grass, the Bible says, that grows and then withers when summer comes. Life is short and brief. And Paul said here, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. He knows that his life is about to end. He's writing from a prison cell. And because of his faith in the Lord Jesus, his life is going to be taken from him and we might even say it better, given for the Lord. And so let's note a few things about this, the brevity of life. Note first that our life is concluding. Paul said, I'm already being poured out. Life is, life is concluding. It's not just, it doesn't ever start again. It's always being poured out. Like a, the picture of like a vase with water just being poured out onto the ground. Notice as well that life is about more than ourselves. Paul said, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, as a drink offering. In the Old Testament, there were drink offerings in times of sacrifice where people would pour out these offerings given to the Lord as a reminder of the sacrifice of sin. And Paul said, that's what my life is like. Really, my life is about dying to myself and living to the Lord. That's what the Christian life is supposed to be about, dying to self and living to the Lord. And Paul is saying, my life, this brief life is being poured out, and it's really about something bigger than me. And I want to see it as, an, as a sacrifice that I'm giving to the Lord, that I'm dying to self and living to the Lord. And we might even think of it in connection with the New Testament story. Some of you remember the story of the woman with expensive perfume who poured it on Jesus. Expensive perfume. 
And the disciples said, why this waste? Why would this woman take this perfume that costs so much, this great value, and pour it out on Jesus? Why this waste? You could sort of understand, can't you? Any of you who are uh, maybe a little more prone to hold on to money or more of a saver than a spender, you can understand what they're saying. Why this waste? Maybe you felt that way about life. Why do people die so young? Why, do, why is life so short? Why is it so brief? Why do many people, even good people, die long, long before we would expect them to or want them to? I read this week about some missionaries who were killed in another country just a few years ago. And they sacrificed so much to leave the comforts of the United States to go to another place to tell people about the gospel. And there they were martyred for their faith. And we would say, why this waste? God, why would this happen? How could this be? Their life was wasted, we might say. But I want you to note this. A life given to Jesus is never wasted. A life given to Jesus is never wasted. No matter how short, no matter how much longer we think they, they might should have been given, a life given to Jesus is never wasted. And notice well that death is not the end. Paul says, the time for my departure is close. Now he's saying certainly that his physical death is coming. That's coming very quickly, and it would come not long after this letter is written. But, wait, but notice the word he uses there. He uses the word departure. Now departure is a closing, but it's an opening, right? It's it's not just the end. It's the end of the time in a place, but it, it means you're going somewhere else. And Paul uses this word for a reason. The time of my departure, he said, is at hand. He's saying, God has something more for me, and death is not the end. In fact, I'll remind you, if you know Christ as Savior, we don't have to live in fear of death. Did you know that? We don't have to live in fear of death. This is, the, this is the frightened generation, scared to death of everything, and especially frightened of death. But we don't have to be. There was a cross that reminds us of death, but there's an empty tomb that reminds us of resurrection. The cross, Good Friday, reminds us of death. But Easter, the resurrection, reminds us of life, so that those of us who name Christ the Savior ought not live in fear of death. Now, we're not looking forward to death or trying to see how quickly we can get there. Of course, God gives us responsibilities in this life, but we don't live in fear of death. Paul calls it a departure, and it's not just the end. He's saying life in this world is brief and short, but God has something more. And one of the ways of getting the most out of life is to acknowledge the brevity of the life that we get in this world. This this comes to us at some point. If you live long enough, at some point you realize how short life is. For me, um, when I was a teenager, I, I think like many teenagers, I felt life was, you know, kind of, I was immortal almost. I mean, it would be so, I would live so much longer. It'd be so long. And in a long, long time, I felt till I got old, you know, 30 years old. That's when you're, you know, that's, you're going to be old someday, but it's so far till 30 when that's when, People are old. That's how you think when you're a teenager. Am I right about this? And I sort of felt that way. But I was in a little small school my junior year in high school, 30 boys in my class, 30, about 30, 29, 30 boys, something like that in my class. And that year, 
You know, I'd never been around a, a death of anyone who wasn't decades, multiple decades older than me. I'd never been around any, I'd really not been around death much, but certainly no one that had been anything but decades older than me. But that year, and that, and that small number of classmates, two of the young men in my class died. One of them was killed in a car accident the night after we played football together on homecoming night. And I tell you, that changes your perspective. And death, which had seemed so far away and so distant, and life would go on forever, it seemed. Suddenly, I began to see the brevity of life. And that, those were hard, those were hard days. It was the first time I'd been around a funeral of someone, um, very many funerals at all in my life to begin with, and then to be around a peer, two peers. And it changed my perspective. And suddenly I thought, you know, life isn't forever. And life is short. And from that relatively early age, it just changed the way I looked at life. And God has used it, this bad circumstance in my life, God has used it to teach me some good lessons. And I have recognized that I, tomorrow, when it, it, life is being poured out, it's always concluding. So when, when today is gone, it is gone, and it doesn't come back again. Now, I know it sounds sort of, I don't mean to sound negative. You know, people say, don't talk about death, Pastor. It sounds so negative, and I always say, I want to be, let me be positive. We're all going to die. Is that, is that positive enough? I'm positive we're all going to die. But not everyone who lives really lives. And one thing God wants to remind us through the reality of death is to really live. Death is real, but that means life can be real. God wants to use this in our lives. Paul tells us this. He's not trying to be morbid. He's trying to be, for us, encouraging. Live the life that God has given to you. We acknowledge the brevity of life. A second step in getting the most out of life is to accept the opportunities of life. Would you write that down? Accept the opportunities of life. So if life is short and brief and being poured out like a drink offering, we need to take the opportunities that we get. Never again will today come, but today is here now, and the opportunities that come with it are here. And so verse 7 gives us three phrases that really teach us more about the opportunities of life. It's sort of like Paul as he's about to face the end of his life, the execution that would come in his life for following the Lord. He's going to let us see a little of how he lived and what we can learn from it so that we live with the opportunities God has given us. So let's note these three phrases. I'm going to give you a word to write down under each of them. First, Paul says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I fought the good fight. And write the word excellence there, would you? Excellence. Paul is saying, I have fought the good fight. I'm in a battle, and I fought the good fight. He's not just saying I fought, you know, like a, a social media warrior just fights everything. He's saying, I fought the good fight. I fought the right things for the right reasons in the right way. I knew I was in a battle. Many people don't realize they're in a battle. Did you know you're in a spiritual battle? We're in a battle, and we need to fight it well. And Paul said, I recognize that I was in a battle. Paul knew that very early in his spiritual life, in his Christian life. And he fought the battle well. He fought it hard, and he fought it right, and he fought it well. He fought for the right things, and he fought in the right ways, and he fought for the right principles. And he lived his life, that Christian life, that relatively brief life that God gave him, that short time from the time he came to know Christ as Savior until the time he died a martyr's death. He lived with excellence. 
He said, I fought the good fight. I just finished a, a book not too long ago on World War II on the Battle of Wake Island. And uh, World War II for the United States, though the, battle, though the war was on long before that, World War II for the United States, didn't, we didn't get in the war until um, Pearl Harbor was bombed. And so many Americans were really woefully unprepared. Our military, in many ways, really far behind where we needed to be to fight these sort of battles. And the Navy was crippled, deeply crippled, uh, by the bombing in Pearl Harbor. And so there were, it was a contingent on this little island in the Pacific called Wake Island. And it was a good place for a port and, and had a runway and, and it would just be very valuable for the Navy and for all the battles that would come in the future. And and, of course, the, the Japanese Navy knew that as well. And so very shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor, they began an attack on Wake Island. Wake Island had 450 Marines and something like 60 or 70 Navy personnel, and they had 1,200 civilians. So before the war had ever started for the United States, lots of civilians came there to kind of improve the port and the uh, operations there to be used on that island, and then most of them went there without any inkling that war was coming. I mean, it, for them, it was just a distant war in Europe, and, and so they were just doing construction work. And then when Pearl Harbor happened, it wasn't long until the Marines and the Navy certainly knew they were going to be attacked, and then they would be, and there'd be a, a battle America would win against great odds first, and then a few weeks later, they would be overrun by the Japanese Navy. Well, the Marines were well prepared, the Navy well prepared. They went to boot camp, they learned how to shoot guns, they learned how to conduct warfare, they learned how to make trenches, but the civilians, not so much. Now, when the, when the bombing of Pearl Harbor happened, the military personnel suggested to the civilians, you might wanna, you know, you might wanna prepare yourself in the case we're attacked. You might wanna just, you know, prepare yourself. And some did and some didn't. So some of the civilians were really prepared and they helped fight the battle. Some were completely unprepared. Some of them spent the entire time just hiding in the uh, undergrowth there in, on that island until they were either killed or taken captive as POWs. And I thought, what an analogy this is for America today. There's a battle going on. Many people are completely unprepared for it. Now, some people are absolutely ready. And they're fighting, the, they fighting the good fight. And they're using their gifts and abilities and talents and resources for God's glory. And they're serving him faithfully. And they're doing their role. They're studying God's word. They're learning all that God wants for them. They're trying to live it out, put it into practice in their life. They're, they're seeking the Lord in prayer. And they are battling on their knees. And they are living out their faith. And there are many like that. But there are many people who are in a spiritual battle and they don't even know it. And the enemy is attacking them and conquering them and defeating them. And they don't even see it. They're completely unprepared. They are unaware of what's going on. And Paul said, listen, I want you to know that this is a battle for your soul and for your future and for your nation and for your people and for your, and for your ministries and for your service. And I want you to be prepared. And Paul said, I want you to see how I tried to live my brief life. I fought the good fight. I tried to live with excellence. I tried to do the very best I could. If you're going to be in a battle, you might as, well, might as well fight as best you can instead of just kind of halfway. And many Christians have never discovered that principle. So do your best to live the life God wants for you. Serve with excellence. Share with excellence. 
Study with excellence. Sing with excellence. Live for God with excellence. Do your best to live the life God wants you to live. Take advantage of the opportunity he gives you today. There's a second phrase we see in this passage. Paul said, I fought the good fight. And then he says, I finished the race. And let's write the word perseverance here. Perseverance. It's a great Bible term. Perseverance. Underappreciated. It's saying we don't quit in the race God has for us. We're going to finish strong. We don't just start. It's not just about the begin. Just the start. Just the initial moments. It's not just about salvation even. But it's also about continuing and finishing the race God has for us. Some of you are facing difficulties and struggles. In fact, if you live in this fallen world long enough, you're going to have plenty of those. You're going to feel like quitting. One of the reasons the Bible talks about perseverance is because we're going to feel like quitting. and We won't always want to stay at the task. And Paul is saying, I want you to finish the race. He's saying to Timothy and he's saying to us, finish this race. Don't just start it. Don't just begin well, but finish well. Do your best. And this race of life, I've finished the race. It's a running analogy here. I'm in a race and I'm going to finish it well. Years ago, I ran a marathon and with my younger brother. And we trained, um, you know, I've never been a great distance runner and he had, wasn't either. And so we just did our, you know, following the novice training um, outlines, you know, what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, just to, to finish the race. We were not under the illusion we were going to win the race, anything like that. I mean, we were just hoping to finish the race. So we prepared, I prepared here, and he prepared in Texas, and we met in Atlanta. We paid good money to go run a marathon. We paid our own money to go run a race. That is the craziest thing. We paid money. We paid them to let us have the privilege of running through their streets of hilly Atlanta and run 26.2 miles, and it'll just, it's not 26 miles. When, it, when someone says a marathon, 26, it's 26.2. The point two is, if you live long enough, it's very memorable. And so we were, you know, had done all the training that we could do and followed the, you know, outline of what we were supposed to do. But, you know, the really great runners, they're so fast. They, they run it like a couple of hours, literally a couple of hours before we finished. The great runners were, you know, they'd long done a couple of hours before we finished. That's how slow we were and how fast they were. And uh, there were people who were really uh, well-prepared and really gifted runners, but many people were novices like us. They hadn't run very much or they weren't very gifted in that area. And, and uh, you know, they plodded along and some of them were unprepared. Even some of the great athletes were unprepared. We saw some, as we were running, we would see some really young guys, really young, athletic, you know, looked like they were in great shape. They, they just couldn't make it at you know, mile 14 or 15 or 16. We were, it was very satisfying to see those guys, you know, unable to finish, I'll just tell you. And as miles keep going, you know, just, this will make you want to run the race, won't it? I mean, it's just terrible. I mean, it's worse and worse and worse and worse. And they, so thank, thankfully, you know, we didn't enter it to just to start the race. We wanted to finish the race. So we just kept going in a mile 20 and 21 and 22. And you, they had, fortunately, as you got into those late miles when you're in pain and, you know, the longest we'd ever run in training was 20 miles. So everything beyond that was new, uncharted territory. And it was, you know, a lot more hills than we had trained on. And, 
So we're running along. People are, they, they have people lined up, especially those last few miles, you know, and they cheer you on. They say, good job, keep going, call the paramedics, or, you know, whatever different things, responses. And a guy said, as I'm running along with my brother, a guy said, oh, look, a father and his son. And I thought, I looked at my brother, and he's younger than me, but he looked like he was 102. I mean, he just looked terrible, just looked horrible. And I thought, how bad must I look if they think I'm the father? I mean, I, I must look terrible. And perseverance is the whole, we, we just, I mean, we didn't set any records, we, but we, we finished. And God in heaven wants you to learn this lesson of perseverance of saying, I'm going to stay at it. You know, the Christian life is not always easy. Did you know that? Did, were you under the illusion that if you follow Jesus, everything will be just smooth and easy and you'll never have a problem? That in this fallen, broken world, everything's going to be great and you'll never, there's never going to be sickness? Were you under, has that been broken by now for you? Do you realize now that this is the world of the dying, that this world is filled with sin and pain and sorrow, and because of that, we live in this fallen world? Even when we follow Christ, there are difficulties. In fact, Paul speaks to that. He's going to a martyr's death because of his faith in the Lord Jesus. And he says to us, persevere. I want you to finish the race well. He's saying, I want you to live for the Lord for the rest of your life. Live for the Lord for the rest of your life. One of the most encouraging things in my life, though I love to see young people who are following the Lord, I love that. But one of the most encouraging things in my life is to see godly senior adults who are sacrificing for the next generation, who will love that next generation, who are willing to make changes for the next generation, who are willing to give their all for the next generation. And may I say to you, younger people who are here, one of the reasons you are here is because there have been some godly senior adults. Maybe you don't even know them yet, but they have sacrificed on your behalf. They've prayed for you and loved you. They've been willing to do hard things. They've said, I want to, make, I want to think about others and not just myself, how thankful I am for senior adults who finish the race well. And I want to say to you younger people, I want you to finish the race well. I love that you're starting well. Many of you are serious about faith, and I love that. But I want you to continue on this race, and I want you to finish to the end, however long God gives you, whether that's short or a long time away, to finish the race well. There's a third phrase that is used here. Paul said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Write the word faithfulness there, would you? Faithfulness. I've kept the faith. Paul's saying, I know the truth. Boy, we put a lot of emphasis here on knowing the truth. We want you to know the truth. We want you to read the Bible for yourself. We want you to uh, be involved in Bible studies like life groups. We want you to open your Bibles, listen carefully in worship services. We want you to know the truth, but it doesn't stop there. Paul said, he didn't just say, I've known the faith. He said, I have kept the faith. And he's saying, not only did I know the truth, I want to live the truth and I want to obey the truth. Certainly we need to know the truth, but keeping the faith means we live the truth and it means we obey the truth. So the principle is live a consistent, faithful, obedient life for God's glory. Live a consistent, faithful, obedient life for God's glory. And I'm praying that will be you. And Christian, I'm praying today you will see in this brief uh, time we call a life, that God has placed in your life some opportunities. And while you can do nothing to change your past, God has given you this day, and with it comes some opportunities. And he's going to want you to fight the good fight. He's going to want you to finish the race, and he's going to want you to keep the faith. 
And I'm praying you will today realize that God has given you these opportunities for a reason and that he wants you to live a consistent, faithful, obedient life for God's glory. But there's a third principle I'd like you to note. Would you write this down? Anticipate the future of life. Anticipate the future of life. If you want to get the most out of your life, you need to think about the future that is coming. You need to see the end result. And verse 8 tells us about this. The Bible says, There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul says some things here that I want us to note. First, he talks about reservations being needed. He says in verse 8, There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness. There is reserved for me. We need reservations. Do you remember the heady days of the old days when we used to eat out at restaurants? And Do you remember when they used to be crowded sometimes? Can you remember that? Sometimes it could be so crowded that you, there are some places where you had to make reservations. Well, the Bible tells us we need reservations for eternity. And that those reservations are not made by our goodness or by our religion. The Pharisees were religious. The Bible tells us none of us are good in our own, in the sense that we're perfect. God is holy. How could we reach God? We need reservations. Salvation is reserving a spot in heaven. I'm praying some of you today will reserve that place in heaven by trusting Christ as Savior. Jesus said you must be born again. We need a new life in Christ. We need to be saved. And I'm praying you'll give your life to Christ. Notice the Bible talks here about a crown. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord is going to give. The crown of righteousness. Crown, a crown is sort of what signifies royalty. We don't have that in the United States, but, you know, my granddaughters all pretend they're princesses. They'll have a Disney princess that they especially like, and, and they'll wear these little crowns, and the crown says, I'm a princess. Which one's the princess? Well, that one with the crown, that's the princess. Okay. Well, we have a crown in heaven. It's the crown of righteousness. And if we want to say, well, who's righteous? Who's, who, who's righteous? Well, the person wearing the crown. The person wearing the crown. The Bible's saying in salvation, you are so forgiven, you are so forgiven that God crowns you in righteousness so that you are seen by God as righteous. Notice the Bible talks here about a righteous judge. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. So God is a judge. He is the righteous judge. He's the holy judge. He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. And he is our judge. Ultimately, I'm not your judge, nor, nor is anyone else. You're not your own judge of the goodness of your life. He's the righteous judge. Now, herein lies the problem. How can this be? That God is just and holy and righteous, and that we are sinful and fallen and broken. How can it be that we gain this crown of righteousness, that we can have a reservation in heaven that is holy, if God is truly righteous. Now, if he wasn't righteous, he could just overlook it. He could just pretend it's no big deal. But he's a righteous judge. He's a holy judge. He's a just judge. So how can this be? That's the message of the gospel. That the reason I can be forgiven, the reason I can have a reservation in heaven, the reason I can be given the crown of righteousness is because God did something for me. I'm a sinner broken sinful 
separated from God. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But God did something about my condition. God sent his only, only son, Jesus, into this world to live the life that none of us could live, that perfect life. Not a one of us has lived the perfect life. Not a one of us is righteous in our, on our own. Not a, not a one of us can wear a crown of righteousness based on our own merit. None of us. But Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, the perfect life. And he was, therefore, worthy to die the death we deserved. I couldn't die for you. I'd have to die for my own sins. I couldn't die for your sins. But Jesus, because he had lived the perfect life, could die in your place. And he paid your debt. His blood is, your pay, is the payment for your, for your sins. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that debt. Jesus paid that price. And he gave his life for you. And he died the death that you deserve and that I deserve. And Jesus did the miracle that we need. He conquered sin and death and hell and the resurrection. That's why we celebrate Easter. There's a sense in which we celebrate Easter every Sunday and really, in a sense, for the believer every day because death has been conquered and sin has been conquered and Jesus conquered the grave. And the Bible says if we will repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus and receive him as Savior, we can be saved. And the righteous judge looks at us not through the sinfulness that we deserve, but because Jesus paid the price, he looks at us through the righteousness that is Jesus given to us. The Bible says his righteousness is imputed to us. The righteousness of Jesus is given to us in salvation as though we had never sinned so that we can wear the crown of righteousness and have a place reserved in heaven. And then notice it's available to all. The Bible says, Paul said, and not only to me, this, this gospel, this salvation is not just for the apostles or for missionaries or pastors or life group teachers. It's available to any who will repent of their sins and trust Christ as Savior. He says, but to all those who have loved his appearing. So the Bible says if we will give our life to Christ, we'll be saved. And in a few moments, I'm going to encourage you, ask you to give your life to Christ. And perhaps some of you today will pray when we pray together. You'll pray to give your life to Christ and find forgiveness of Christ. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment so that we can trust Christ as Savior. And in a moment, we're going to pray together. And when we do, I'm going to ask you to give your life to Christ. What the Bible is saying here is you can live most effectively when anticipating the final victory. The reason you can overcome all the problems is because we know there's a victory still to come. The reason we can endure to the end is because of the victory that still is to come. The reason we are not fearful of death is because of the victory that is to come. We're anticipating the future of life. It's been almost nine years ago now since my father passed away, and he died in a way that's kind of unusual by today's standards because um, it wasn't in an accident and he wasn't medicated. It was just unusual in that regard. So was, um, my father... <clears throat> had some problems at the end of his life that required him to do dialysis, and then the dialysis had some problems, and so to make a long story short, he, he had a final dialysis, a very difficult final dialysis, but it, uh, he couldn't do it anymore. And so he knew he was going to die in a couple of days, and he felt good because he'd had the dialysis. It's kind of an unusual combination. So for the next day, the day before, the next day after that, he would slip into a coma and pass away. But that day before, he knew clearly he was going to die very soon, not just like in, you know, very soon. But he was completely lucid and aware of that and, and felt 
really good. And so he spent that, that was the most amazing day to experience with him. Um, he, you know, told everybody how much he loved them, of course, and we would do that sort of thing. And um, he uh, tried to encourage us all, you know. He was a little bit, he was, um, he was super excited about going to heaven, about seeing Jesus. He witnessed every person who came into the room, you know, nurses and doctors and people who came in. People would always come in, you know, guests would come in, friends and stuff would come in crying, and he was like, he was not sad. He was, it was kind of an unusual, because he was so super excited. I mean, he was, you know, sad for leaving his wife and kids, but, um, man, excited about seeing eternity. And I just, it's just one of those amazing events. It happens so rarely, you know, so in my life I'd seen death so sudden as a young man and realized the brevity of life, but then I got this privilege of seeing the end of life and, and and I just thought, man, that guy, he kind of got this. You know how you, you don't always appreciate your dad. Um, I know some of you didn't have a dad that was in your life, but if, even if you did, lots of times you don't appreciate it until they're gone in some ways. And I got to kind of say, you know, this guy kind of, he knew, he knew about life. When he was a boy, he gave his life to Christ and recommitted his life and that when he got uh, the World War, uh, actually the Korean conflict stage of his life, and he, he knew life was short, and he was like, super excited about heaven and kind of lived with that in mind, and so Vesti knew how he tried to fight the good fight and finish the race and keep the faith. And I just said, God, man, God, I'm thankful. Thank you for putting that in my life and helping me to see this little picture of what Paul was talking about all those years ago, about what my life needs to be like as I face the future. Let me tell you, Christian, what I'm asking of you is this. I'm asking you to, to live a life that counts. Because life is brief, but God's given you opportunities in this life right now. And one day soon, we're going to stand before God in eternity. Prepared or unprepared, we're going to stand before him one day soon. And I want you to live the life that counts. I want you to fight the good fight. I want you to finish the race. I want you to keep the faith. Would you bow with me? And as we pray, if, you're, if you need to be saved, I want to lead you in a prayer. Not just, I don't want it to be words. If you just say words, you know, it doesn't change anything. But if today you're willing to repent of your sins and give your life to Christ, you could be saved. You could pray a prayer like this. So if you'd like to give your life to Christ, I want you to pray. We're watching online, here in person, pray, pray a prayer like this. All right? Just say, God, I know I've sinned against you. Don't justify your sin. Rationalize it. God, I have sinned against you. You are holy and I am not. And you tell me in your word the wages of sin is death and I know what I deserve. I deserve to be separated from you by my sins. But here and now, as best I know how, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I want to repent of my sin. And I believe you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. Just tell him that. I believe you rose from the, from the grave and conquered sin and death on my behalf. And I believe you can save me. So here and now, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and I give my life to you and I ask you to save me. I give my life to you and I ask you to save me. And if you mean that, Christ will save you. And for some of you watching this or here in person, this is the biggest moment of your life. You don't see it, maybe, maybe you don't even realize how big it is yet. 
you've given your life to Christ and Christ saved you and he's, he wants to grow you and deepen you and strengthen you and he wants you to follow him and live the life that he has for you, I, I want to ask you to grow in your faith. Man, I'd love to hear if you gave your life to Christ, come see me at Connection Point or fill out the connection card online or in person and let us know and we'll rejoice with you, but grow in your faith. Christian, those of you who know Christ as Savior, would you say, God, I want to live this kind of life. It's brief. I just get, however, if it's decades still, it'll be gone in a moment. And I know one day I'm going to stand before you and I want to live in anticipation of that day. I want to live today with what counts, what will count when I stand before you. So help me to fight the good fight. Help me to finish the race and help me to keep the faith. Father, I want to thank you for your word. There's a power to it. And these verses that have been so meaningful in my life, would you burn them deep in us so that we live a life that counts, so that we make a difference for your glory, so that you are honored in and through us. Father, for those who prayed to receive your Savior today, we rejoice with heaven itself over those who would give their life to you. And Lord, we pray Christians will be strengthened and that we will follow you more fully. And we thank you, Father, for helping us in this battle and helping us to fight the good fight, helping us to finish the race and helping us to keep the faith. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.